if you're going to talk about pressure and handling pressure, then I've got to name the player that I played up front with on my debut for Tottenham Hotspur when I was 19, and that's Teddy Sheringham. And I remember sitting down after we did a finishing session in preseason, and I just said to him, you know, what were you thinking? Why did you step up and be able to put it into the top corner, almost as if like it was just a training ground penalty? He said it was because I've done this so many times, because I felt so comfortable. It was something that he practiced so many times that when he stood up to take it, he was so incredibly confident to go and slot the ball into the corner. Welcome to the Performance Lab, a new podcast that explores the behaviours of elite sports people to give you the blueprint for success both on and off the pitch. Each episode, we'll speak to the most compelling people in sport to understand the secrets of elite performance and help you to learn from them. My name is Ben Welch, and this week I'll be discussing pressure with my co-host and performance guru, Ryan Wilson, and our guest, former Premier League footballer turned performance psychologist, Paul McVeigh. Pressure has the power to overwhelm the most gifted of athletes, rendering a highly skilled performer into a bungling amateur. But there are strategies that can help you combat this crippling force. During this podcast, Paul McVeigh is going to help you modify your mindset so that you can deliver when it matters most. Thomas Helbeck. Damien Francis now. It's Paul McVeigh now. It's blocked away. Now McVeigh for Norwich City and McVeigh has scored. Squeezed in by Paul McVeigh. And Norwich have a goal back in the game. And their travelling fans who've come in their thousands to Old Trafford have a goal to celebrate. Paul McVeigh. Hi Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thanks ever so much for coming on. Firstly and most importantly, how are you? Um, embarrassingly well, Ben. Thanks very much for asking Never be embarrassed about that, mate. Glad to hear you're doing well. So, as I said at the top of the show, this is a podcast about pressure. And for 25 years, Paul, you have been an elite performer, first as a Premier League and international footballer for Tottenham Hotspur, Norwich City and Northern Ireland, and now as a performance psychologist. You've worked with the biggest organisations in the world, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, NatWest, Microsoft and Cisco, where you have helped empower individuals to understand the mindset, habits and behaviours that unlock elite performance. That is quite the resume. Now, can you tell us a little bit about your work? I suppose it's uh, it, it, for my um, work or the role I have these days just seems to be like a natural continuation on from, from nearly 20 years in professional sport and, and to be able to take, I suppose the, the insights and the lessons of, of what could be considered you know, the most competitive, most ruthless industry on the planet and taking them from the world of, you said, Premier League and international football and, and being able to share them in a, in a manner or in an environment such as the corporate world that people can listen to what you've done or what you have to say and more importantly, what you've learned and be able to apply those principles to their own life is, for me, it's hugely satisfying and, and you know, a lot of my friends went from the playing side into the coaching side as in, you know, football coaching on, on the field. And for me, it was never something that really interested me or I was never really passionate about the coaching side of, of playing. But ironically, I do loads of coaching now in terms of, you know, with whether it's chief execs, senior leaders, or, or, or still, you know, professional athletes, just because 
there is a certain section of, I suppose, the population that just want to get better. They want to be the best. They will do whatever it takes to get to that level and achieve their goals. And they're the people I love working with. Absolutely. And it's exactly the reason why we wanted to speak to you. So as I said, this episode is all about pressure. And from your playing days, we always, we're kind of obviously interested to hear. I know that you've played with the likes of Gaza and, you know, you played with some great players. And of all the players that you played with, who handled pressure better than anyone? And can you kind of give us an example of where you saw them handle pressure better than your average footballer? If you're going to talk about pressure and handling pressure, then I've got to name the player that I played up front with on my debut for Tottenham Hotspur when I was 19, and that's Teddy Sheringham. And to have someone of, of Teddy's, first of all, just class as a person and quality as a professional footballer, that, I suppose that um, just being around someone like that and learning from those experiences of how he handled himself, the way he dealt with what you're calling pressure, he would probably just call, you know, his everyday work. And, you know, whether it's scoring goals in the Premier League or, you know, obviously when he went on to play for Manchester United and scoring goals in the Champions League final and getting into the last couple of minutes before he scored. These are the kind of things that, yeah, most people would consider pressure. But I suppose whenever you are competing at that level all the time or on a regular basis, it's not necessarily pressure and more just something that's all part of the job. But interesting, whenever I was, I think I was 18 so I just finished my two years in the youth team at Tottenham Hotspur. I'd come back after the summer. So it was 1996. And of course, England had just done really, really well in the Euros 96. Now, obviously, they were probably, you know, could have been favourites to win it, but went out on penalties to Germany in the semi-final. Of course, I'm sure most people remember that infamous penalty from Gareth Southgate. And of course, he's doing so well as England manager now. But if you remember, the 10 penalties leading up to Gareth Southgate's penalty were exceptional. Probably the best display of penalty taken I've ever seen. And, and Teddy hit one of those penalties. So if we're going to talk about pressure. I'm thinking when you're playing in front of your own country, 90,000 year fans in the semi-final of the European Championship, and you're hitting the fourth or fifth penalty, that's probably what most people consider pressure. And I remember sitting down after we did a finishing session in pre-season in the start of 96, 97. And I just said to him, you know, what were you thinking? So even in those days when I was, you know, 18, I was already thinking about these things. Why did you do that? Why did you step up and be able to put it into the top corner? Almost as if like it was just a training ground penalty. And that's exactly what he said. He said it was because I've done this so many times, because I felt so comfortable hitting penalty kicks. He used to take them for for Spurs he would have taken them for Nottingham Forest and Millwall and all the other teams he played for before Spurs it was something that he practiced so many times that when he stood up to take it he was so incredibly confident to go and slot the ball into the corner so that's where the interesting thing has been pressure is probably whenever it's a little bit more than your skills get skill set has evolved to but someone like Teddy Sheringham if you're doing that every single day then that's probably not really pressure does pressure then become a shift in expectation? So it's no longer, can I do it? It's just that everyone expects me to do it. Is that how the pressure may shift? No, because I think it still comes back to, it's a skill. All of these things that we do in sport are all skills. And of course, we know skills are learnable. We know there's four stages of skills. 
or learning a skill and of course that whole unconscious incompetence all the way through to the unconscious competence and the four levels that take you from never having done that skill before to essentially mastering that skill so it shouldn't really matter of course it does because you know psychology is is what makes us human and it does influence whether it's the environment you're in the expectations you have of yourself but i think that actually it's whether it's the fans, the manager, his teammates, probably wouldn't be expecting anything different than Teddy when he stood up to hit that penalty. Can you give me an example in, in your career? Obviously, you know, more vastly experienced, not just as, as a footballer, but as a human being now and, and in your profession, but and maybe uh, an instance in your football career where you didn't handle pressure, but it was a, almost a pivotal learning point for you where you made a mistake, you didn't handle the pressure, but you grew from it. Um, probably there was, there's two things, actually. I think there's, there's one is uh, post-football. And whenever I first delivered a keynote speech for Aviva, so I had just stepped away from professional football. I'd actually gone off to America and learned from a keynote speaker who was delivering speaker training. And he gave me all the technical skills for me to be able to stand up in front of, you know, any kind of audience from the corporate world and be able to deliver a speech. So at the time I had one keynote, it was on leadership and essentially I needed to learn that so much by practicing it over and over again. So when I stood up in front of my first uh, keynote speech was for Aviva for 150 senior leaders. And I remember standing up in front of that audience and just being terrified, really petrified. You know, I think it's probably the fact that most people are more afraid of speaking in public than they are of snakes and death already just gives you an example that you know most people probably don't like it but for me I practiced it I you know I'd felt ready to go and deliver it but as soon as I stood up I was awful <laughs> I mean really really bad you know these little red cheeks were really rosy and it was stammering and stuttering the whole way through it now, that was because I had an expectation I could start at the start of my speech and deliver it 45 minutes verbatim, you know, without any mistakes. So when I get to the end of it and, you know, you're speaking to the guy that booked you in and he was like, oh, that was really good, really inspirational, loved how you said this. Now, that was just someone else looking at what you were doing and thinking you've done really well. So it's almost expectations of others in your performance. But I knew I'd probably done it like a six out of 10. And what that made me do was then to go back and make sure that I had practiced everything that I needed to do. So whenever I, next time I stepped on stage, I can go and deliver a top class speech. So that's really to do with, I don't think I had prepared as well as I could have done. And essentially that's of course what we just talked about if you've done something over and over and over. But of course it's really hard to replicate standing up in front of 200 people for your first time ever, if you've never done it. So it's almost like you just have to go in at the deep end and that's, I suppose, why I love this this world of performance and, and psychology, because there's some things that you can't practice for and you just have to dive in to your feet and see, and see where it goes with it. So, But of course, the more you do it, the more comfortable you become, the, the hopefully the more you learn from it. At least that's my process. Analyze what you did well, what you can improve on and keep moving forward so you have that continuous improvement throughout your life. When you were a footballer, what was the most pressure you ever felt and how did you handle pressure as a footballer? Um, probably the most pressure I'd ever felt was when I made my debut at 19 in the Premier League 
away at Aston Villa and ironically we just talked about Gareth Southgate missing the penalty and as England manager he was also the centre half that I made my debut against so Gareth and also um, God rest him Ugo Ekiog were the two centre halves and essentially the two of them just kicked me all over the pitch for <laughs> for 90 minutes but that was a bit like welcome to the Premier League you know you're a little four foot nothing little short hours and you're coming under the Premier League you think you're going to get something out of this game and they literally kicked me all over the place but the pressure that I felt before that was in the warm-up. You know, we had players like Saul Campbell, Darren Anderton, you know, Ian Walker, Teddy, Sharon, you know, like really, really top-class players. So in the warm-up, they were just, just another game. We had Villa Park. They were just having a nice time before, before the match started. Of course, this is my debut. I know I'm starting. I am literally just sprinting across the pitch for about 35 minutes before the match had even kicked off because I couldn't relax my breathing I couldn't control my physiology so that I was ready to go onto the pitch so by the time I started the match I was probably about 75% the way through my energy reserves before it even kicked off but yeah that's one way of not being able to handle your handle the pressure but that was probably more similar to what we talked about doing my first ever speech it's something that you can't really replicate I can't replicate playing in front of 40,000 people at Villa Park I just have to do it and then learn from it as you got more experienced as a player, was there a routine for this? Like maybe as you got more experienced, you saw a young player across the dressing room. What would you have gone over to them and said, what advice would you have given them for handling the pressure? My dad uh, recommended I should try visualization when I was 17. And again, not really having any idea what that was about. And he essentially talked through how, you know, the best sports men, women in the world, they were doing this thing called visualization. If you apply it to your, football and your career potentially you could you know benefit from it which I did so I started going through the process of what's the visualization process what else can I do to help me do it such as practicing it so really quick example the one scenario and again in my naive state the only one scenario that I used to visualize was getting the ball on the left hand side of White Hart Lane about 25 yards outside on the left hand side of the pitch cutting into the edge of the 18 yard box and curling it in the far top corner so i used to visualize that one scenario over and over and over and over again for weeks and months and years probably about five or six years and the interesting thing about this ben is that whenever i finish my career and some of the times whenever i'm delivering a keynote for whatever organization i might be doing it around the world sometimes i play a little clip of almost like some goals that i scored throughout my career and the one goal that i scored more than any other goal in my career was getting the ball on the left-hand side, cutting into the edge of 18-yard box and curling it in the far top corner. It's over 60% of my goals. So what I say to them is that because I was doing that over and over and the benefits that I got from it, it's something that I believe was hugely influential. Did it absolutely guarantee that that would happen? No, but I do think it's not a coincidence. And so that's one thing that I really you know emphasize of why that's so important and because everybody can do it. Then the other thing was getting into that routine before a match. Because again, because the more things we can control, probably the more comfortable you're going to feel, the more relaxed you're going to feel. And one of the things that I got into, again, having a conversation with my dad about visualization, a conversation I had with my mum was around doing yoga and stretching. But that also started incorporating the breathing. Now we call it meditative breathing, but at the time it was just deep breathing that, that helped me through my through my yoga. So whenever I first started it and, you know, even just bringing my yoga mat into the Norwich City training ground, 
you can only imagine what 25 professional footballers thought when I first brought my yoga mat into the training ground in about the year 2000. You know, the first one I brought in essentially got cut up in a million pieces. Then the next time, because, you know, I'm a stubborn little shit and I'm like, there's no way these Neanderthals are going to beat me. So I'm back down to the shop getting another one. Got the yoga mat, brought it in again. This time they physically set it on fire. Like they burned it. I'm like, right, okay. Yeah, and they're not going to beat me. Down and get another yoga mat. Same thing until eventually they brought it out into the car park and started like doing wheel spins and donuts. On. And I'm like, oh my God. Anyway, by the time I brought in the fourth one and I finally got into the little room, the side of the physio room, started doing my yoga every day before training. People were coming in, you throwing things at you, whether it's physical or verbal abuse at you, until eventually it got this stage where someone walked in and went, We man, what are you doing? And I went, just doing some yoga, just doing some stretching. He says, but we're going to go out and do a warm-up, do the stretching, you know, in a few minutes. And I went, I know, I just want to do what I need to before I get out so I'm 100% ready rather than use the warm-up to get ready. And again, it's part of the routine that I had for my training matches that made me feel comfortable and ready to play. So the visualization and having that pre-match routine were essential, I think, for me being able to have that long-term career. And I suppose the caveat to all of this, Ben, is whenever I finished, and I was really, really fortunate that I didn't get, you know, any kind of, you know, knee injuries or any other real kind of impact injuries like a broken leg. And within nearly a 20 year professional career, I only ever had one muscle injury. And that was actually a thigh injury when we're doing a shooting session in preseason on the first couple of days and probably shouldn't be doing anyway. But again, it goes back to the visualization. Was it a coincidence? Probably not that the fact that I was doing yoga from the age of 17, I'm now 43 and hopefully just as flexible now as it was then you talked about your mum and your dad and, and some things you potentially sort of learned yourself but you worked with lots of different managers did you take anything from their approaches and different styles and personalities about how to handle pressure and not only handle pressure as an individual but the how they would help a group handle pressure my first manager was a world cup winner Ozzy Ardiles all the way through to had George Graham who obviously had an incredibly successful time at Arsenal um, at Norwich City I'd worked with a couple of managers who who had done well as in bringing themselves up to a certain level, getting promotion into the Premier League, etc. But without naming names, there were some managers who would be much more negative and more focused on all the things they didn't want you to do and almost like creating this environment of fear. And don't want to say who they were, but they were managers. So you kind of want to stay away from those. But the best example I ever had was actually in my last year of playing at Norwich City in my second spell back there. And Brian Gunn was the manager who brought me in. And, you know, forever grateful to Brian Gunn for giving me that second chance back at Norwich City because he brought me in the start of the season. But unfortunately, after a couple of games, he, he was let go. And Paul Lambert came in. And again, Paul Lambert, Champions League winner, had done unbelievably well in his playing career. Like man marking Zidane out of the Champions League final. And he came in at the start of the season and essentially everything he did was about standards, not letting them slip an inch or a millimeter because the standards were impeccable. And everything he talked about was focusing on winning, focusing on winning the league and considering he's had such an amazing playing career. And even though he hasn't gone on and probably reached the heights of what I thought he was going to do. But that year that I worked with him, we won the league, having started off probably third or fourth after about 10 games or sorry, third or fourth from the bottom after about 10 games and then he had back-to-back promotions in the Premier League and essentially took a League One team into the Premier League for three years and so whenever I see the 
focus that he had on winning and that mindset of success, that is what I would say, that's what you need to be replicating. Not all the managers should be build up the fear and all the things you shouldn't be doing. You're sort of saying that he would embrace pressure rather than create a sort of feeling within the team that um, we need to play within our like limitations so that we don't break to the pressure. Whereas Lambert would be saying, no, we want the pressure and we, and we embrace Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And Andy always just had this every single thing we did. It was just win. It was so simplistic, so binary. You're going to, you're winning. That's it. You know, <laughs> there is another option, but we're not taking it. We're going to win. And, and, and that, for me, just showed how you could take players, you know, that really were kind of League One players at the time, like your Grant Holtz and Wes Houlihan and Russell Martin and all these other players who were playing in our Norwich City League One team. And within two seasons, they're performing really, really well in the Premier League. And I think Paul Lambert had such a huge influence on all those players to be able to bring them to the standard of, of what's required when, before he'd met them, they were nowhere near playing at that level. Well, I found it quite interesting when you're talking about the mindset and like managers and previous experience. What is the performance mindset to you? If I were to try and give you a couple of couple of I suppose um, characteristics, traits, or attributes, and say maybe it's the ability to learn, and not only just how you learn, it's then the ability to apply those learnings to what you do. So that would be one of the most important things that I have, and maybe even as a presupposition to that, is to be able to go, well, do I want to learn? Do you have the curiosity that you want to learn? So before you even start learning, you probably have to have some sort of curiosity that you want to learn. And then once you've learned something, do you want to apply that to your life? Because as we know, just because you can try something or attempt something, you're probably not going to get it you know, right first time, you're probably not going to nail it. So then do you have the resilience to get over that? Okay, I didn't really do it first time, but I know if I do this over and over, I'm probably going to improve. And what level do you want to get to? Then you have goals, targets, what are you focused on? How much responsibility taken? The literally list goes on and on. So it's it's a really, really good question. I just think it's really, really difficult to, to answer concisely. Now you've worked in business. How does pressure differ from business to sport is there anything they can learn from each other and do you think you've noticed any difference between like ceos of these mega corporations do they handle pressure any differently to an elite athlete um i suppose that the difference of a, of a ceo towards an athlete is that an athlete's mindset and what an athlete does is so self-centered some people might call it selfish or narcissistic, but I don't think it is. I just think it's almost what's required to get to that elite level. And, you know, I definitely had that spell in my life. And when I say spell, the whole time I was playing, when everything in my world was about me. And I probably was really self-centered and selfish, but not in a malicious way, more just because I need to focus on me and I need to do everything that I can do so that I can perform at that level because it is unbelievably tough to get to the pinnacle of professional football. Otherwise, the millions of kids around the world who try and do it and try and aspire to that level, we do it. And in fact, there's not, there's the not point, not, 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 not one percent of, of people that ever do that. But that's really what you are as an athlete. It's all about you. As soon as you go into the business world, and especially when you're talking about the top levels, the CEOs or the MDs or the FDs or whatever, they have to think about and incorporate hundreds or thousands of things into their thinking 
And then it's about how do we bring all of these together so that we can essentially perform at the highest level, which ultimately means increasing the bottom line generally from what, what they're doing from the corporate perspective. But that is the big difference. An athlete, it's all about you, CEO or someone leading the team. It's all about bringing all of these moving parts together and then how to be as efficient, as productive as possible. I can't imagine what a CEO that's got, you know, thousands of employees working at this company and everyone's got an opinion of how things should be done and then you can make a decision and it just doesn't impact you it impacts the business that's pressure how have you seen these ceos handle that pressure from everyone and the outside i think it it does come back to a lot of the a lot of the principles or the the things that we would utilize in sport and it is about what can i control if a CEO of a business is making decisions, can he control what people think about those decisions? Probably not. Can he influence what people he has within his team or a senior leadership team that are going to make those decisions? Absolutely. So there are certain things that are within his control and certain things that aren't. And, and it's back to, and we talked about Teddy Sheridan hitting the penalty over and over and over again. And so when he has to do it in a, what some people would consider a highly pressurized environment, then Teddy's able to do it. But of course, someone like a CEO, unless it's their first job, they've probably already got that experience and those learnings from previous roles. So you go, okay, these are some of the things that I know work to help, you know, run this organization or to, or to make it profitable. And that's, this, that's really, it comes back to me going and going doing my first ever speech. I knew it wasn't going to be the best speech I've ever delivered, but I knew that whatever I could learn from it, I was going to apply and make those improvements so the next time i go and do it i'm going to be better again and then the next time i do it i'm better again and i think that's why it comes back to the mindset then it's that growth mindset that psychology of continuous improvement that you know none of us are perfect we don't all make the best decisions all the time but the more you can learn from it the more you can apply those learnings to whatever you're doing that gives you the best chance for success what do you do when you're working with someone who does something and the performance doesn't go particularly well and then the pressure to do that thing again is almost it's crippling to them they they can't bear the thought of doing it again because it went so badly what how would you help that person well i think there's there's generally two things whenever you come to um someone underperforming it's either the skill set or the technical skills to do the whatever that happens to be let's call it a task or the mindset to want to improve, want to do it well and actually get better or just complete whatever that is. And if you don't have, if you don't have either of those, you really are struggling because someone might not have the skill set to do it, but they might have, you know, the most dedication, you know, desire to improve, really, really want to get to that level, whatever that is. And just because they don't have the technical skills, that can be taught. But if they have the technical skills and they don't deliver it, and they actually have no desire to improve, no reason why they want to do it again, or to stay involved in the organization. That's a really tough one. Because then you're just saying, is the person right for the role? Is the person right for the task? Because there's loads of things that if I try to do, I wouldn't have the skill set to do it. But is that in my, let's say in my speaking world, or if I'm going to work on with a professional football team, if it's something that I should be working on, then that's really down to me because that skill set is something I should be learning. But if it's nothing to do with what I want, how I want to improve, then actually it's just something to be staying away from. When when you were playing football, 
and not even just that, even probably going back now as a professional on the opposite side to the field. Um, do you find that, or did you find that dealing with pressure, and that I don't mean just pressure in the game, you may have had kids, family issues, you know, traveling away, living a hotel life, transfers, being away from your partner, your parent. Do, are there different frameworks and strategies that you now know professionally, which can support individuals who are having to go through kind of off the field type pressure? It's not the same as like missing the penalty or, mm. you know, a couple of bad passes. Come on, lad, next one's got to be better. These are, these are real life scenarios, which in my opinion, kind of house a different type of trauma and pressure left on you. You know what? Do you believe that there's different frameworks to support people with that? It's only since I've stopped playing professionally that I have got a framework that I have used for my own life and my own career, both in professional football and as a keynote speaking um, or performance psychologist, whatever you want to call me, whatever role or tag you want to put on me. It's only since I've stopped playing have I actually been able to use a framework that helps me across all areas of my life. And I think that's the interesting thing that, I kind of, I thought that I did well in football. And the reason why I say that is because, you know, if we back that four corner model, technically I was, you know, I was okay. I was never the best, never the worst. Physically, you know, four foot nothing, a little short hours. I am never going to be able to compete with, you know, Saul Campbell was in my debut team, six foot three, man mountain. You know, I just can't compete with him physically. But from the mental perspective or the psychology, I was always adding things into my game that, probably were a little bit ahead of my time or I was doing things that other people weren't doing which is what allowed me to compete at that level but again that was almost like trying to draw different experiences and different lessons or a little key message from a book that I might have read during my playing days and it was only afterwards that I managed to create a framework that I can then share with the corporate world and again it's because it takes time you know, you have to learn these things over time that you'd say and go, okay, well, actually, the reason why we do this is actually because it's the accountability that you take for your life. Because again, my experience, this is definitely not a judgment, more of an observation. The majority of people that I come across don't take anywhere near as much responsibility for their lives as what they could do. All the way through to goal setting. You know, it's something I started doing whenever I was 16, 17, reading my first ever book in this whole subject of psychology and personal development. So I've always had goals in my life for like 25 years. So it's so ingrained in my DNA to have goals, not just for my personal life, but also my professional life. Where if I walked into a corporate audience and you have, I don't know, a hundred senior leaders in the room and you ask people how many people have goals or targets for the work life, everybody's got their, listen, everybody's got KPIs, objectives, you know, things they need to work on. Okay, great. And then if you ask the next question is how many people have well thought out well considered and this is generally the key difference written down goals or targets for the personal life in that same room of high performing people maybe one or two people might put their hand up and that's in a room full of incredibly high performing people who are doing unbelievably well at work but in their personal life they generally have no idea where they're going or let me rephrase that they generally have no idea why they do what they do they just do it because like most people, just getting through the day can actually be a massive achievement. And it is for some people. But remember what I said earlier about how there's a small population, really small percentage of the demographic 
who want to be the best, who want to outperform everybody, who want to achieve things that they could never have dreamed of when they were a kid. And that's the people who have those goals and targets for their personal life. Because then you start saying, well, actually, it's about your value system and how your values drive your behaviors every single day. And without turning this into a psychology session, but the whole subject of cognitive behavioral therapy means that how you think drives how you feel, but drives what you do or essentially your behaviors. But of course, in my world, my behaviors, my performance and my performance every single day would dictate what outcomes I had in my life. And what most people don't understand is the way their life looks today is a direct correlation with the way they think. But unfortunately, when we talked about accountability and responsibility, what is happening in people's lives, most people don't take accountability for. They think the reason why I'm doing this is because of the government, or it's because of COVID, or it's because of the sun, or it's because of the newspapers, or it's because of the way I was brought up, or it's because of the house I lived in, or it's because of the school I went to, or it's because of my friends. And interestingly, once you bring everybody more onto a kind of a, a mindset or a psychology of taking accountability, responsibility, having a real clear plan of what you're going with your life, focusing on it, making sure that you can start managing the way you wander through the world and having that real control of your emotions. Suddenly we start bringing all those things together and then you realize why you see the sort of the quality of people's lives improve when you work with them. My office is in trouble tomorrow. <laughs> when I go in and take accountability, people ain't going to lie that. I know. <laughs> and you know what? And that's the funny thing because most people don't. You know why? Because it's really, really hard. And you know why most people don't get to the Premier League level? Because it's really, 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 really hard. Now, it's funny you say that. Um, working with a lot of professional footballers, I see some very, very, very talented individuals. A lot of coaches come up to me, Ray, what do you think of this, lad? And I'm like, look, ability-wise, can't question it. Now, I'm no psychologist. However, sometimes you can identify, a bit like what you said, they don't really. They haven't re, um, reverse engineered their goal setting process to be able to identify steps, and a strategy to get to the top of their game. So they're kind of going a little bit off of emotion, in my opinion. You know, they're 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 going about their way, doing what they're doing. Now, from what I've heard from you when you were playing, you kind of you know back then with Southgate and Hugo Ekiog, you know, you were kind of playing. Uh, early 2000s football but really it's kind of like a 2021 strategy because that's what a lot of us profess today um but my one of my biggest fears is i'm working with a couple of under 18s who in my opinion it looks like their parents are applying a lot a lot of pressure because they've been a little bit more of a late bloomer they've now got this opportunity to play professional football and i'm looking in their eyes and i'm saying I know you really want this, but who wants it more? You know, how do you support individuals like that? How do you support parents of individuals to allow to say, look, pressure can be good, it can be bad, um, and we can do it for the right reason, or think we're doing it for the right reasons. Um, how do you want to identify and how do you support people in, you know, managing the pressure? So I think that the big part of that is, Yes, there are loads of parents who want their son or daughter to almost like to do better than they did and almost have that vicarious lifestyle of, of that their son or daughter may bring them this glory or celebrity that maybe they never had. It's really, really difficult is the first thing. 
you know, I think that I was really fortunate that my mum or dad didn't put that kind of pressure on me to do whatever. It was a bit like, if you like football, brilliant, go ahead. But the other side is that what happens that, and kind of what I've seen in terms of this shift in the, I suppose it's probably be the socioeconomic backgrounds that players are coming in from. So whenever I was uh, joined in the youth team in, in 1994, we had loads of players who would have come into professional football at Tottenham Hotspur and might have got, you know, a couple of exams, they might have got a couple of A's, a couple of B's, probably most didn't really do that well in their school. And then in my last year that I was working at Crystal Palace, which was kind of around that Aaron Wan-Bissaka sort of year whenever he was, it was at Crystal Palace when he came through with me. And you're speaking to all his teammates. And he was, I was saying to him, so how did you do in your GCSEs? And he went, uh, 12 A's. And you're like, what? And then there was another another couple of lads, you know, how'd you do? Uh, 12 A stars. So it was almost this dichotomy that players who were coming in were coming in for almost high-performing households. You know, so their parents could have been lawyers or doctors or whatever, business owners. And it's almost they're showing their son or daughter what it's like to be able to be a high performer across life. And that's probably quite difficult to compete with because if you've been brought up in a household, that whether it's a parent or both parents, giving those messages and, and helping them learn from an early age what it is they, they kind of need to be successful, that's really, really, that's such a massive advantage to have. The other side of how you deal with the pushy parents, which I think that's essentially what you're asking me, is almost a bit like, and this is unbelievably difficult to do, but it's a bit like social media. You know, that's all the kind of stuff outside of what you're doing. That's all the things that you can't control, what your parents say to you. And listen, I'm saying this, like there's no emotion in this answer because I can only imagine if you have not played well and then you go home in the car and your parents giving you a really hard time because you've not played well. That must be one of the most difficult things in the world to deal with. So Paul, I know... Um performances bespoke to the individual everyone has different you know uh, emotional intelligence everyone has different talent etc but let's just stay we're speaking to uh, a general audience of sort of amateur uh, athletes who play everything from semi-pro to sunday league and they kind of choke a little bit when they when they play what small simple things very generic things could they do that may or may not like that might help them um, under at least understand the pressure in a way it impacts themselves and then maybe hopefully channel that pressure so they can perform better when the moment when it matters most sounds like if you're talking about when they choke it could be that you know in a certain part of the game that they like to say they have a one-on-one -on -one with the goalkeeper if they're a striker and they miss that big moment because all of the big moments in games are all can be distilled down to one simple exercise or one simple skill so for instance if it had been a one-on-one -on -one with a goalkeeper and every time they're in that position they keep missing keep choking well then it's about practicing that skill set because then you could have the same thing with someone who hits penalties and every time they have a penalty doesn't matter what stage of the game every time they have a penalty they either keep missing or they don't don't slot it away and again that's a skill course it's not a close skill so the keeper is always going to be trying to trying to put them off but it is back to the skill set and being not just good obviously the practice levels to take you through to being excellent at that skill that's what i would say that it is the practice what would you say to a player who's 
in that moment and they're hiding and they're not asking for the ball, they're not showing for the ball and they're playing safe and they're crippled by the thought of, if I make this mistake, everyone's going to judge me. Is there any advice you would give to someone who plays like that? Yeah, talk about it. Because it's funny, I actually just spoke to someone last week who started at Manchester United around that whole Ferguson era in the 90s, played in and around the Beckham and Giggs and Scoles and all those boys, went on to have, you know, international career, four or 500 games. And he said that before every single game he couldn't sleep because he had this crippling nervousness when he went out onto the pitch. And I was listening to him thinking, wow, you've, you've done really well to have the career that you've had if that's what you were going through every single time. And similar to what you're saying about the, you know, someone hiding, the generally it is fear that drives pretty much all those kind of behaviors. And fear is generally because it hasn't been faced almost. You know, it's if we have something that we are afraid of, you know, my thing is always about, you know, trying to meet a face on because generally it's never as bad as what you think it is. And it's interesting because whenever I go back to the the kind of the the stuff I do now in my in my work as a performance psychologist or if I'm a keynote speaker, the fear I had for public speaking was not that, like I joked earlier about people are more afraid of speaking in public than snakes and death, but it's not that I was going to die on stage, but it was the social death that what happens if I walk up there and I either fall over, stumble, blank, do whatever happens and I don't deliver what I'm being asked to deliver. So that was the fear that I was almost like project into the future. But of course, what happens is you then go through that experience and the amount of time that I've stood on stage and I have blanked, I have no idea what I'm going to say. The amount of times that I have stumbled or fallen over or all of these things that could go wrong has gone wrong in my 11 years of doing this. And I still survived. And I still managed to carry on. But I'll tell you what I did do, and it's the exact same with what I did through football, is that I didn't have the best game every single time. And actually the framework that I had for getting over those poor games or poor performances was not really very helpful because if I had a bad game, I generally beat myself up mentally. Until someone showed me this world of essentially cognitive behavioral therapy, that it's not what happens, it's the most important thing, it's how you think about it but also not just how you think about it, the questions you ask of yourself. So instead of having a bad performance and then asking yourself questions like, why do you always mess up? Why are you so stupid? You know, why do you always get this wrong? Just changing the question that I'd ask myself. So the same scenario would happen. I'd either miss a chance in the last minute, have a bad game or not play well. And instead of asking myself those really ineffective, unhelpful questions, I'd then just flip it. And I'd be asking myself questions like, okay, didn't play well, what can you learn from this? Or you didn't play well, how can you improve so that the next time it's less likely to happen? Because there's no guarantee it's not going to happen again. And because your brains are a bit like Google, whatever you ask of yourself, your brain will just give you a million, million answers for it, like the way Google does. So instead of me answering the question, why are you so stupid? Why do you always mess up? because you're useless, because you didn't practice enough, all the things that I would answer of those really unhelpful questions. It was then, okay, what can you learn from this? Okay, maybe I'm not as good as a finisher as what I think I do. Maybe I need to do more practice. 
maybe I'm not getting over mistakes better. Maybe I need to forget about them quicker because say the way like a Sergio Aguero or whoever used to do it, as soon as he misses a chance, he's on to the next one. And so the way that you ask yourself the questions are for me, one of the most important parts of dealing with setbacks and, and the issues that we have, whether it's on the pitch as an athlete or in life and just dealing with things that don't go according to plan. Yeah, I think what I've taken from this conversation is one, like, don't overthink it. It's actually quite simple. It's sort of practice and planning will give you confidence and clarity. And uh, it's not the end of the world if something goes wrong and that you just kind of need to embrace those situations that are challenging, but realize that if it doesn't go according to plan, that's okay. And that you can learn from it. And it doesn't mean, it doesn't define you the moment that it goes wrong. Um, you can grow from that and, and get better from that. And rather than wasting all the energy thinking about what can go wrong, actually, if you channel that energy to, like I say, uh, practice and prepare and practice and prepare with sort of positive things and then you're going to be more confident and you're going to handle that pressure when you get into that situation. Yeah. And, and, and I think just to sum it all up, probably all the things you said there is I would agree with, but really it's don't be a perfectionist. <laughs> That's so hard. <laughs> That's you know what? I, 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 I totally... That's the hardest part. It is. It's like... But is um, it hard? Is it hard? Because essentially all you've done is you've created a belief about yourself that you're a perfectionist and I can create a belief for myself that I'm not a perfectionist and you don't have to be a perfectionist and the more that we tell myself those because essentially our beliefs are driving everything we do and you can change a belief like that so if it is hard yep it will be hard to change it if you think it's easy to change beliefs to change your behaviors or change your life then maybe it might be easier to do I think I can accept me not thinking that I'm perfect but I don't think I can accept other people looking at my performance and not thinking it was good enough. That is the bit that I struggle I didn't with. ask for, I didn't say not good enough. I said, don't be a perfectionist. <laughs> Funny, isn't it? Did you Funny stop? how the language is so important. Yeah. That's why That's why our self-talk is crucial to our um, levels in life and also our self-worth, self-esteem, self-belief, all of that stuff all comes from that psycholinguistics um, that we all have. It's just how you manage it. And then if you can start being proactive, the other side is then you start creating affirmations for yourself that are actually more effective of how you want to be as opposed to beating yourself up whenever you haven't done something perfectly, whatever perfectly means. We all have beliefs that are limiting because, you know, they're limiting beliefs in and, in and of themselves or beliefs are limiting of themselves. I suppose the question would be is, do your beliefs allow you to achieve the life that you want to live and if they are brilliant keep using them if they're not then i would seriously consider challenging them changing them eradicating them or completely getting rid of them out of your life okay so basically you've just made me question my whole life poll so now i'm gonna go away. <laughs> i'm about to write that down <laughs> well the thing is a really quick story when I came over from Belfast, I was really naive. I was really green, didn't have any self-belief, almost like inferiority complex. And then I met Jurgen Klinsmann on my first day at Tottenham Hotspur. Made it even worse because I'm suddenly training with a World Cup winner. How am I ever going to get to that level? And I kept that really limiting belief that someone like me, someone from Belfast, the 16-year-old little small guy, is never going to be a Premier League footballer. Until 
I saw my friend who I played with in youth team, a guy called Rory Allen, get from the second year in youth team into the first year team. And then suddenly I got there the next year. Then when he was in the first year team, he then got into the reserves. And then a year later, I got into the reserves. Then we're in the reserves. Then he played, made his debut for Spurs against Manchester United, live on Sky Sports, under the lights of White Hart Lane, and scored against that unbelievable Man United side, the late 90s, with gigs, Beckham, Scholes, Kane, etc. And as I watched my mate Rory Allen score against Manchester United, it was like a little switch went off my head and I suddenly thought wow if my mate can do that then so can I I still had a limiting belief it was just that now my limiting belief was now Premier League was here my limiting belief was up here and within three months I made my Premier League debut so that is why our beliefs are so powerful and so important but again I didn't probably have the belief that I was going to be the best player in the Premier League which again would put me at a certain level of what I suppose if there is a pecking order in football of where I ended up. So I'm not saying I was perfect at it. I'm just saying that at the start, I knew my beliefs were holding me back until eventually I was allowed to. And it didn't happen because of me. It happened because of my friend Rory Allen. So that's how fortunate I was. That's really interesting. Now I'm going to go and think, go away and think about that question you just posed. We have courses you can come on, lads. <laughs> <laughs> just before we go, Paul, that actually uh, brings me to, you know, for anyone listening, where can they follow you? Where can they uh, check you out? Um, subscribe to anything that you do. Yeah, so um, quite a few things. So first thing would be just go on the website, paulmcvay.co.uk. So you can find out all the information and download all the, the packages and prices and contact me about, you know, uh, working with, with your organization. Um, I also do a podcast similar to this. Uh, so a lot of yours talking about pressure today. Mine's is the psychology of success. Because again, I want to focus everything about what, how to do it, how to learn from people who are the best in their fields. So the psychology of success. And then a big part of um, my kind of work and my network's all on LinkedIn and Twitter. So if anybody wants to, to connect with me on there, then, then that'll be great. Fantastic. I really appreciate your time. It was a um, fascinating conversation. I've taken a lot from it, not least the fact that I've just realised that my belief system for, the, for my whole life has been completely wrong. So now I'm going to so go away and change it. Uh, but uh, thank, thank you for your time, Paul. That was fantastic. Yeah, my pleasure. That's all for today's episode. Thank you for listening. I really enjoyed chatting with Paul and Ryan about handling pressure. The key take-home messages for me were preparation and visualisation. Integrate those into your process and you'll gain clarity and confidence when it's time to perform under pressure. Rather than avoid your fears, you need to embrace them. And if things don't quite go to plan, don't be too quick to beat yourself up. Reframe the questions you ask yourself after failure and use the experience to improve. Once again, I'd like to thank Paul for his time and please make sure you go and find him on social media and give him a follow and check out his book, The Stupid Footballer Is Dead. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you can leave a five-star review, that would be much appreciated. If you want to go the extra mile, please come and find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram with the Performance Lab podcast. Hit follow and stay up to date with all our latest content. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll see you soon. Mm -hmm.